You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Governor Francis Nicholson awoke the morning of 28 April 1700 in Kikotan, Virginia. Today, Kikotan no longer exists as a distinct polity. You know, there's no city called Kikotan in Virginia. Years ago, it was incorporated into another town called Newport News, named after Christopher Newport. But at the time, Kikotan was closer to the town of Hampton, Virginia. Now, all of these towns dotted the southeast tip of what they call the Lower Peninsula. That's the same peninsula on which we find Williamsburg. But while each of these coastal settlements had their own distinct identity, what really tied them together was the parish. The Elizabeth River Parish, today called the Elizabeth City Parish. The single point around which the entire region really coalesced was the church. Now, you can't go visit the actual physical church today. The modern church that serves that same congregation, St. John's Episcopal, wasn't built yet. It wouldn't be built for a few more decades, and then it had to be rebuilt after a fire destroyed it during the Civil War. The original church, a small wooden church, 
stood about a mile away from the modern-day St. John's. Now, 28 April was a Sunday, and that wooden church is where Governor Francis Nicholson attended service. He accompanied Colonel William Wilson, the commander-in-chief of the Elizabeth County Militia. Governor Nicholson was staying with Colonel Wilson while in Kikotan. The two men were joined by Wilson's wife, Anne Jane Wilson, and their three kids, Mary, Anne, and Willis Wilson. Now, to have the governor visit your church wasn't, at the time, quite as big a deal as it might be today. After all, there were only like five or six churches in all of Virginia, but it was still an honor. But on 28 April 1700, they had an even bigger honor. They had the presence of yet another man of influence and standing, Captain William Passenger of HMS Shoreham. Now, Captain Passenger wasn't a nobleman. He did come from a family of landed gentry, but he was an accomplished, erudite member of London society. You know, he had some class. More than anything, though, he was a newcomer. This was his first Sunday in the New World, and it would have been the first opportunity for a lot of the people of Kikotan to meet him, and they were more or less impressed. After the service was done, they likely would have had a large town meal. It would have been hosted by the rector, but the governor and Captain Passenger would have been guests of particular note. At some point, I imagine, with these two men at the table, the topic of piracy would have come up. After all, that's why Passenger was here with the powerful HMS Shoreham. The people would have wondered, I imagine, how he planned to deal with the pirates. But Governor Nicholson, I imagine, probably would have suggested that the good captain and a ship like the Shoreham would probably deter any pirates who might otherwise have attacked. I mean, you'd have to be a special kind of stupid to menace the Chesapeake with a ship like that waiting for you. The rest of Governor Nicholson's day was taken up by work. You know, Sunday was a day of rest, but for a man in his position, no one really ever had a day off. There were no council meetings or anything like that, but Governor Nicholson would have taken this opportunity to pick Captain Passenger's brain. Passenger was up to date, or at least a lot more up to date, on what was going on back in England, and the wider world in general, especially, and this would have been of concern to Governor Nicholson, what was going on with the threat of ever-looming war with France. Armed with this wealth of new information, Governor Nicholson began to compose many letters back to the home country. That evening, Mrs. Wilson would have had a great deal of work before her, preparing a meal for her husband, their kids, the governor, and a fancy-pants captain from London. After dinner, though, the men would have kicked back and relaxed, you know, probably smoked their pipes and enjoyed the nice, warm spring evening. But the work was not yet done. Governor Nicholson had quite a few letters written, but he wanted to go over them again and finally to seal and address his letters. He was working by firelight and candlelight into the dark of full night, the sounds of the village petered off to almost nothing. But then the door burst open and a man in full panic burst into the room. This is episode 323, A Great Ship. The man who had erupted into the quiet evening was Captain John Aldred, 
of the Essex Prize. He had recently received orders from the Admiralty back in London to get the Essex Prize ready to sail to lead a convoy of tobacco ships back to England. He was being replaced by the Shoreham and Captain Passenger. To that end, his men had been repairing and refitting the Essex Prize. Meanwhile, though, Aldred himself was busy sailing around and preparing all of those merchant ships in the region for their departure to England, and there were quite a few of them filled with rich Virginia produce. They dotted the coasts of Chesapeake Bay, taking on wood and water. They were buying beef, salting it for travel. Generally, they were getting ready for a voyage across the Atlantic. On the evening of 28 April... Captain Aldred had been aboard a small coastal pink in the company of a ship called the Nicholson. That's why Captain Louis Guitar and the pirates of La Paz had had such fruitful hunting over the past 24 hours. Now, Louis Guitar was not from Chesapeake Bay, or Virginia, or the region at all. He didn't know what it was like. But a smarter man, a more thoughtful man might wonder why he'd found so many ships in such quick succession. All of them filled to the brim with supplies, almost like they were preparing for a long voyage. Had he stopped to think about that, really rolled it over in his mind, he might have understood that there was a convoy preparing to depart, which meant that there was at least one ship there to guard them. And when he was told by one of the men he had captured that there was indeed a powerful warship in the region, he might have thought, huh, that makes sense, and gotten out of there, but that's not what he did. No, he ignored that man because someone else had told him there was virtually nothing defending the Chesapeake. And he much preferred that version of the truth to reality. But of course, when that ship's carpenter told him about the Shoreham, he knew about it, because Captain Aldred had been there to inform them about it. When Captain Aldred arrived at Colonel Wilson's house, the three men he needed to see were all there. Wilson was, of course, the commander of the local militia, but Captain Shoreham and Governor Nicholson were both staying with him. He told these men about the pirates in Linhaven Bay, having captured at least two ships, but he managed to slip away. It was good work and quick thinking, and those three men were ready to act immediately. Captain Passenger had orders from the Admiralty itself. They said that he was to, quote, go out and cruise the Bay of Chesapeake for the defense of this colony against pirates. All that which you meet with you are to take, sink, burn, or otherwise destroy, end quote. They weren't totally ready, just a couple of days earlier, Governor Nicholson and the Virginia Council had purchased a sloop from a local planter that they intended to use to aid in the defense of Chesapeake Bay. And it was a good idea. A sloop was almost necessary in a place like the Chesapeake. There were tons of little inlets and rivers that a big ship like the Shoreham would not be able to enter, and most pirate ships could. But that sloop wasn't ready to sail yet. They only had the one ship that was properly ready to defend their colony. But of course, that was a powerful fifth-rate man-of-war. So Governor Nicholson issued his orders. Passenger was to get the Shoreham ready as soon as possible. Aldred was to collect his men, those who would normally have been sailing on board the Essex Prize, and accompany 
Captain Passenger aboard the Shoreham. It would bolster their numbers, and also to collect anyone from town who might want to volunteer and go hunt these pirates. And more than a few were, including, notably, the local dockmaster and the local customs officer. Colonel Wilson had more complex orders. He was to deploy the militia in a number of key locations, just in case the pirates decided to flee inland, and he did as ordered. But for now, this was a naval fight. By midnight, Governor Nicholson was at the docks, boarding HMS Shoreham, alongside Captain Aldred, that customs officer, that dockmaster, all of the other volunteers, all of the men of Essex Prize, and all of the men who had come over from England. It was a packed ship, and all of them wanted to go kill some pirates. The Shoreham departed the docks shortly after midnight. The problem, though, about leaving the docks shortly after midnight is that it's, you know, dark. They had a local pilot on board who knew these waters like the back of his hand, and they made it down the James River safely, but once they arrived at the mouth of Lindhaven Bay at the very southern end of the Chesapeake, they had to stop. Lindhaven was full of shifting shoals and sandbars, and it would be just too dangerous to enter it. They would have to wait until the sun rose before they could advance. It was 3 a.m. on the 29th, and the Shoreham had to strike sail and wait. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Louis Guitar and the pirates of La Pa were very, very nearby. Their night of heavy drinking and frivolity was beginning to wind down. Some of the men sneaked away to catch what sleep they could, some were still on deck, and a few were watching over the prisoners who were doing all the work. Remember, they were dumping those 700 hogsheads of tobacco into the waters of Lindhaven Bay. As darkness began to fade into a misty blue-gray of pre-dawn, one of the pirates noticed the outline of a large ship at the mouth of the bay. The pirates sauntered over, or some of them stumbled over to the rail to get a good look. 
Captain Whitaker of Indian King. All bloody and bruised up from the attentions of the pirates, he laughed at them, and he announced that that was a great ship. Captain Guitar was still firm in his belief that the only coastal defenses in Chesapeake Bay were the Essex Prize, so he rounded on Captain Whitaker and responded, quote, There is no man of war here, and if it be a merchantman, I will have him by and by. End quote. The pirates on board laughed and continued to drink or rifle through some of the sea chests and hidden little cubby holes they found. But what they did not do, since that was so obviously not a warship, they didn't prepare for battle. The sun, though, continued to creep toward the horizon, and the darkness continued to dim, and soon enough it became clear that that ship was no merchantman. On board the Shoreham, they could see La Pa now, and they could also see her two captives, Indian King and Nicholson. The men of the Shoreham, though, were very much prepared for battle. Once the truth began to dawn on the pirates that that was a powerful warship, they hustled back to La Pa to ready her for battle. But the pirates were, well, tired. They'd been up all night, and they were quite drunk. They did, however, know their craft. They checked their guns, got them loaded and manned. They slipped sabers into their belts. They loaded and primed their pistols, and crewmen climbed up into the rigging. They were ready for a fight, or as ready as they could be in their condition. Captain Louis Guitar stood on the quarterdeck, bellowing out orders and preparing to send those dogs to the bottom of the sea. At about 7 a.m., Captain Passenger saw the sails of the pirate ship La Pa drop, and the ship began to move. The pirates, though, had fewer men than they would have wished. They were a few men short just because some of them hadn't made it on board. Some of those men who had snuck away into the bowels of the Nicholson to catch a few hours sleep didn't wake up. They were still there. And some of the men were below decks guarding the over 50 prisoners that were being held down there. All told, they were short about 10 men, which could have come in handy over the next few hours. Keeping those prisoners below decks might seem like a liability, but... They didn't really have much choice. I mean, if they let them go, they could just sail one of their own ships around and do who knows what kind of mischief. They didn't have time to kill all of them, and they didn't even want to. Because those men might serve as a bit of an uh, insurance policy, should things go badly. Lapa sailed toward the entrance to Lindhaven Bay, but of course the Shoreham held the mouth of the bay. And currently, Captain Passenger had the advantage in wind, so he didn't really need to move, just wait for the pirates to come to him. He did, though, order a shot fired across the pirate's bow. A single warning shot, ordering her to surrender. But the pirates did not. They returned the warning shot with a full broadside. Of course, their broadside fell short, but it was a move that announced their intentions as loudly as possible. By 7.30, with the sun finally above the horizon, the two ships were engaged in a dance of death. Now, I'd love to tell you all about the daring maneuvers or feats of tactical brilliance that define this battle. To tell you all about the brilliant strategic maneuvers made by one of these daring captains, but I really can't do that because there's none of that to talk about. This fight 
was going to be a brawl from beginning to end. There were two ships in combat firing salvos at one another for the next several hours. Now, that's not to say they were standing still. Lapa was constantly on the move. The pirates were trying to reach the mouth of Lindhaven Bay, but HMS Shoreham was in her way. So when they tried to get around, the Shoreham would have to move to stay in her way. The pirates would try to get around that, and Shoreham would have to move again. But they weren't even moving in a straight line. I want you to try to picture the ships moving in a kind of rhythmic serpentine pattern. Like there are two snakes that are slithering side by side, and they drift apart and then slither back in closer, and then apart and then back together. Every time they came close to one another, they opened up with everything, every gun they had on that side of the ship. And the Shoreham had the advantage here. She carried 30 guns, while Lapa only carried 28. Of course, two guns isn't much of an advantage, but we need to remember those four demi-culverin on Shoreham. The capital B, capital G, big guns. This pattern continued for several hours. Every 15 or 20 minutes or so, the pirates and the Shoreham would fire at one another. And before long, things began to get rather bloody. Donald G. Chamet writes in Pirates of the Chesapeake, quote, The carnage aboard the crowded decks of La Pa was considerable. The dead and even some of the more seriously wounded were thrown overboard to make more room for the living. Portions of a human skull whistled through the air as a volley of shot from Shoreham raked the pirate's deck. Yet the grisly fight continued. End quote. And we have a pretty excellent account of what's going on on board La Pa during this fight, thanks to John Hewling. He had no one set station. Instead, he was serving as kind of a gopher for Captain Guitar. He would run from the gunners to the men manning the rigging and then go check on the prisoners below deck and then he'd run up to the quarterdeck to tell Captain Guitar what was going on. And Captain Guitar would give him orders to carry, which he would then do and bring news of what was going on now back to Captain Guitar. He may be the best possible source for what was happening on the ship at the time. And in just a few weeks, he's going to give us an excellent account of the action. While all of this fighting was going on, the people of Kekutan had assembled on the nearby coast to watch the battle. Now, a few weren't there because they'd been sent back to town to gather foodstuffs so that they could all have a bit of a picnic. But once they returned, everybody from the region was sitting on the shore watching this beautiful fight go down. While they watched, the two ships made another of their great sweeps, you know, drifting apart and coming back together. But this time, Captain Passenger issued new orders. Thus far, the rhythm had been the two ships pulling in close, firing on one another, and pulling back apart again. But this time, the two ships pulled in close, fired on one another, but only Lapa pulled away. The Shoreham stayed close. In fact, she sailed in even closer. So close, in fact, that the two ships were soon within pistol-shot range of one another. Captain Passenger bellowed the order, and his men drew pistols and fired. The pirates were standing at the rail as well, and they took a lot of hits in this maneuver. 
but we know more about what was happening on the Shoreham at this moment. There was a crewman named Peter Heyman who, quote, fired several shots into the pirate's ship, end quote. This was according to another crewman named Joseph Mann. Mann was standing just a couple of people down the rail from Peter Heyman. And there were several others in their little party. Captain Aldred was standing nearby and managed to hit at least a few pirates firing away at them as fast as possible. And even Governor Nicholson was there at the rail firing his gun. To hear reports tell it, he was screaming at the pirates, kind of a defiance, maybe his own personal two minutes hate at these people who had caused him so much trouble. It's an inspiring moment. If you're making the movie of this story, this is the climax, where the big swells of dramatic orchestral music take over the score, and there's no sound, but you see all the action, right? But of course, the pirates had their own pistols, and they were pretty quick on the draw. One of those pirates spotted this well-dressed dandy standing there with a smoking pistol, seeing a man who had very likely hit at least one of his friends in the firing. Now, the pirate couldn't have known that it was Governor Francis Nicholson, but he was clearly an important man, probably some pompous, rich aristocrat. So he fired his shot. Joseph Mann was standing next to the governor, and he saw what happened next, but it was a bit confused. What he saw looked something like this. There was a squish of sound of a bullet hitting flesh, and then a splatter of blood that flew back and hit the deck. And at that exact moment, Governor Nicholson turned and exclaimed. Joseph Mann thought that the governor had been shot and probably killed. And this wasn't some impersonal thing, either. Joseph Mann was that port officer we mentioned from Kikotan. He knew Governor Nicholson and even liked him. You might even say they were friends. But Francis Nicholson had not been hit. On the far side of the governor was Peter Heyman. Heyman was also friends with Joseph Mann and the governor. He was that customs official we mentioned. And Joseph Mann, standing there in a bit of shock, suddenly saw Heyman fall to the deck, dead. It was at this point that HMS Shoreham began to pull away, out of pistol range. The reality of how this happened is disputed. Maybe the pirate just had poor aim, or, you know, maybe the bullet just kind of bounced that way. Pistols at the time weren't that accurate. But some, including the governor, would suggest that Heyman sacrificed himself to save Francis Nicholson. But then, before they got too far apart, Captain Passenger had one final surprise for the pirates. The holes on the lower deck opened up, and the barrels of frighteningly large Dimmy Culverin cannon emerged, and they fired a volley at the waterline. They only scored a couple of hits, and one was pretty serious, but the other was devastating. The first was the hull, which had been breached. Eventually, the ship would begin taking on water, and they'd have to deal with that. The second was... Well, the pirates were trying to get away. They knew this was a bad situation. But when they turned the wheel, trying to get further away from the Shoreham, nothing was happening. That second shot 
had hit the rudder and destroyed it. It was completely useless, and they were completely unable to maneuver. The sails and the rigging had also, and this is a quote, been torn all to tatters. Sitting around their picnic baskets, the people of Kikotan toasted this daring maneuver. Lapa was dead in the water. And now the HMS Shoreham opened up again with everything they had. Their big guns, their pistols, everything, as fast as it could be reloaded. The air sounded like a never-ending stream of rolling thunder. Lead balls were falling on the pirates like a hailstorm. The pirates themselves were forced to retreat below deck. It was clear at this point that the battle was over. Captain William Passenger ordered a ceasefire, and Lapa drifted aimlessly for a few minutes, but then it struck the bottom. The ship listed and was beached. Now, you'd think the pirates would surrender, but their flag, the red, the bloody flag, continued to fly atop the mast. According to the rules of engagement that went back to the dawn of human history, they had not yet surrendered. And the pirates, hunkered down below decks, had all agreed that they were not going to allow themselves to be hanged in a place like Virginia. They agreed to die before they let that happen. Which, of course, was crazy. You know, they didn't have any bargaining chips. Oh, wait, except for those fifty prisoners. Captain Louis Guitar had his men gather all their casks of gunpowder in one spot. Then they poured a trail of loose powder from the pile of barrels to the upper deck, and they had a man there ready to light it, should the signal be given. Then they chose a man from among the prisoners to send over to the Shoreham with news of their plight. They were to beg the good captain to negotiate and to save all of their lives. They chose a man named Baldwin Matthews and threw him overboard. But when Baldwin Matthews hit the water, he did not swim for Shoreham. Instead, he swam the other way, to shore, which was not ideal. The pirates, though, began to chant, Broil, broil, broil. They were declaring their intention to burn if terms had not been met. So they chose another man, John Lumpany, from the Pennsylvania merchant, to deliver their message. Later, he would testify that Captain Louis Guitar gave him this message, quote, Tell the commander-in-chief if he will not give me and my men quarter and pardon, I will blow the ship, and we will all die together. End quote. Lumpany did as he was bid. He swam over to the Shoreham, was brought aboard, and delivered the message. Governor Francis Nicholson wrote a reply. He said that he would indeed give the pirates quarter, but he would not give them pardon. And then he sent Lumpany back. Exactly what happened when he delivered the message to the pirates isn't known. But it should be taken into account here that there were a good number of men among those pirates who were not there by choice. They did not want to be pirates. They had been conscripted. By the pirates. Some of them may have taken part more willingly than they would later tell the court, but some of the men knew that they had a chance not to die, either today or at the gallows. The pirates were divided. Nobody knew what was about to happen. 
Governor Nicholson and Captain Passenger watched through their spy glasses with bated breath. Minutes passed by. Any moment, something was going to happen. The tension grew thick. Maybe now was the time, but then, through their spy glasses, they saw the bloody flag begin to descend. The pirates had surrendered. There's one last postscript I'd like to add before we leave today. You can't visit that old wooden church of Kikotan today, but the remnants of the cemetery of that church are still there. You can go see them. For example, you could visit the grave of a Willis Wilson, the son of that commander-in-chief of the militia force, one who had accompanied Governor Nicholson to church that day. He would die in just a couple of years' time, still a boy. But one gravestone, near the back and very faded, difficult to read, has been recorded. It says, quote, This stone was given by His Excellency Francis Nicholson, Lieutenant and Governor General of Virginia. In memory of Peter Heyman Esquire, he went voluntarily on board the king's ship Shoreham in pursuit of a pirate who greatly infested this coast. After he had behaved himself seven hours with undaunted courage, was killed with a small shot, he 29 day of April, 1700. Next time, Punishment. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight